Good morning, everyone. If you would, take a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 12. For those of you with a physical Bible, that uh, will be in your New Testament. About two-thirds of the way through the book, you'll find uh, that the Bible switches from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and you're looking for the third one of those, Luke. No shame in using the table of contents, and if you have a mobile version of this, it's easy to look up, Luke chapter 12. It's important to me that you know where to find this, because I don't presume that the words that we share in the next few minutes are going to uh, stick with you uh, in their entirety. Uh, But what will stick with you is one thought, one idea, one phrase that you heard Jesus use that you'll want to go back and look at. And so it's important to me that you know where to go uh, when you try to go and resurrect that thought or that idea or look deeper at what Jesus said. And so we're going to find our way to Luke chapter 12, and that's the passage I've actually selected for you uh, today, even though we'll spend a little time finding our way there. Uh, We just finished uh, taking communion with each other. This uh, season will be one of lots of eating. We will have uh, lots of meals that you'll share with family and friends. Uh, Certainly a lot of holiday meals are coming in the weeks to come. But you realize that on a weekly basis, the most important meal that you share with others is that meal that we just took. It is sharing in the body and the blood of Christ as he communes with us in this meal that does three things. And did you catch those? Danny pointed out that the meal that we just shared is a celebration, it's a proclamation, and it's an examination of ourselves. And so let's take a moment to think through what we just shared together, holding in our hands the body of Christ, holding in our hands the blood of Christ, And remembering what that meant, celebrating his death, his burial, his resurrection, uh, proclaiming to the world that his death, burial, and resurrection is a part of making the world right again. And now let's take a minute to examine ourselves and let Jesus be our teacher and come and share with us, how do we take this that we held in our hands and now share that with the world? How does that change us and make a difference here in this community in in which we live? We're entering into a, we are entering into a season uh, that involves a lot of sharing and a lot of doing good. It doesn't matter what your uh, religious background is or faith tradition or even cultural tradition, at least for those of us in a Western type of culture, uh, the next few weeks are ones in which uh, lots of people uh, expect to do good and to share. And lots of our traditions and lots of things that we celebrate will be centered around doing good and sharing. The question I have this morning is, what about that idea of doing good and of sharing? What about that is uniquely Christian? What about that is unique to those of you who choose to follow Christ? And the the thing that makes it unique for you who are a, a follower of Christ is not what you do in terms of doing good and sharing, but it's why you do it. And today I'd like to remind you of, of why. Doing good and sharing is something that came up last week. You might remember in our lesson last week, we found ourselves back in the letter to the Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, in which that letter ends in chapter 13 by saying, uh, through him, meaning Jesus, then let us continually offer up, do you remember this phrase? A sacrifice of praise. It's the same phrase as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. But then he ends with this, the very next uh, sentence, do not neglect to do good and to share. 
There's the title of today's lesson. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When you do good and you take something that is in your possession and share it, do you understand that is the equivalent, as one of God's priests, of walking into the very temple through the holy place, into the holy of holies, and laying down before God a gift. That's what this is called, is a a sacrifice. And with such sacrifices of doing good and sharing, God is pleased. But sharing and doing good is not easy to do. Uh, It is not in our human nature (laughs) to want to take what is mine and share it with someone else. We have to have that human nature trained out of us as children who all know that to take something that is mine and share it with something else, somebody else is a very hard thing to do. But you don't lose that when you get old, do you? This comes out in a story. You remember when Jesus was approached by, we're told, a ruler in another uh, one of the Gospels, he's called a young man. In another one, he's just called a man. So we end up just kind of combining all those and calling him the rich young ruler. There's this, this rich young man who approaches Jesus and asks him a question. He recognizes Jesus is an expert in certain spiritual matters, and so he has a question for him. Now, those of you who are experts in any given field know how this just happens. Uh, I practice as a physician, so I am a follower of Christ, but what I do during the week is I work as a physician. Well, once that becomes known, uh, people tend to assume that there is a given right to approach with certain questions that you just happen to have about medical issues. Now, those of you who are professionals in other ways know this is true. Those of you who are mechanics, how many times do you get approached by, you know, I have a question about my fill in the blank card. Those of you who are IT or computer experts, how many times do you get pulled aside to say, hey, I got a question about this whole reboot thing that ruined my computer. <laughs> What's, you know how once somebody knows what you do, they feel, you know, free to approach you for questions. Now, as a physician, I get asked all kinds of funny questions in very public places, <laughs> you know, uh, once people find out that I'm a physician, you know, even down to the point of uh, saying, hey, could you take a look at this rash? <laughs> could you tell me, is this something I should be concerned about? And it, well, they, they knew this was going to happen. So when I was in training as a physician, uh, they said, you need to have a phrase in your back pocket. And that is, if somebody approaches you and it's an inappropriate time, so that, just to be clear, it's very appropriate if we are friends and family. <laughs> you know, if you have a question, I'm happy to answer that. But there are times when it's just inappropriate. And so they, they told us that if somebody approaches you at a time that is inappropriate, the phrase that you're to say is, you know, I'm, I'm happy to give free medical advice, but only after a full physical exam. And you're supposed to emphasize that word full. <clears throat> Because somewhere in there, people hear the snap of the rubber glove, and they, uh, they tend to back away and say, uh, no, I, I just, it was just a small question, nothing, nothing important. Well, why would you back away from that offer? If someone offered you a full physical exam, why would you back away from that? Well, I know why you would back away, because you did not have a question about everything going on with you. You only had a question about one small concern, something causing pain, something causing anxiety at the moment. But you know what happens with a full physical exam. With a full physical exam, I may just find something that you don't want to know about yet. And the full physical exam is where we find those scary things like cancer. Or it's where we find that there's blockage in a coronary artery. 
something that you're going to have to do something about, or I find something else about your uh, lab work, your blood sugars, or your blood pressure, something that's going to require a major change in your life, and you just as soon not know about that yet. And so you take the step back and say, no, I don't really need the full egg. Well, if you understand that, then you'll understand what transpires here in Luke chapter 18 when the rich young ruler goes up to Jesus and recognizes he is the expert in all things spiritual. And and he just sort of, you get the sense, makes his way through the crowd up to Jesus and says, hey, Lord, actually he calls him good teacher, good teacher. Uh, What would it take for a guy like me to inherit eternal life? And the word there he uses is the word zoe, real life unto the age. And he says, what would it take for a guy like me to have real life? And you remember Jesus's answer. He said, it's already written out. Follow the commandments. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Obey your mother and father. And he lists them out. And the young man smiles and he says, great. These I have done since I was a little boy. And we're told there that Jesus loved him And said to him, there's one more thing that you still lack. And that's what you see on the screen. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad because the rich young ruler was very extremely rich. So you see what happened there is that Jesus offered him not just the advice. He just wanted a little spiritual advice. Jesus offered him the full physical exam, and he put him through this MRI scan of his soul and found him just riddled with a particular cancer. And it was a cancer that we might call greed. And the man went away sad because he had, because he had great wealth. Well, I know that this particular passage is not a command to all of us. This isn't a command to sell what you have and give to the poor. That's in other places. We'll find how Jesus addresses that. But let's say that it was. How would you do if this were your question to Jesus? What would it take for somebody like me to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to you, here's the one thing you lack. Sell what you have and give to the poor. Could you do that? Allow to come to mind all the things that you possess. Would you be able to part with it to sell it and then take the proceeds, whatever it is, and help someone else? Fill in the blank with all that you have. Start with what's on your body now, the cell phone in your pocket, the clothes that you have. Go out to the parking lot, the car that you own, the homes that you live in, the things that are in your home, the things that you do for enjoyment with your family. Uh, the, all the things you possess, just list them out. <clears throat> could you sell those and give to give to the poor? Or would that be a difficult task? There was a missionary called Watchman Nee, and he was famous for saying that every Christian must be ready at a moment's notice to give up everything that he or she possesses without regret. He always threw that in at the end. That's what it means to follow Christ, is to be ready at a moment's notice to give up everything that he or she possesses without, could you... Could you do that? Can I introduce you to some followers of Christ who had absolutely no problem with that question? 
You read about them in Acts chapter 4. So this is early on after Jesus has risen from the dead. And then it's uh, several weeks later, it's on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and it falls on the first followers there of Christ. And and then people begin to follow Jesus. 3,000 people that first day are baptized. And so you have this young church forming. And one of the things that we're told about this very young church in Jerusalem is that they shared communion just like we did. They devoted themselves to the teachings that Jesus had passed on through the apostles. But another thing that was amazing about them that everybody knew is that they shared everything in in common. In chapter 4, we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one suke, or soul. And no one said that any of those things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. Do you remember last week we talked about grace was another word for gift, and this great gift of God was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses would sell them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. They had no problem at all with doing what they did in their profession, with taking what they owned and possessed, and then mobilizing those resources to do good and to share. How did they get there? How did we get from where we all are as the rich young ruler to this point as a congregation of people who are followers of Christ, how do we get to this point where somebody in our community or in our state or in our nation would look and say, there is a group of people in which there are no needy persons among them? How do you get there? Well, the answer is found not in good advice that I could give, but that's found in the words of Jesus. And so let's let Jesus be our teacher and see what is it that Jesus taught these very first followers of Christ and see what we can do to adopt and put that into practice today. So this is what brings us to Luke chapter 12. And we'll just work our way through the passage. In Luke chapter 12, we're told about a time when Jesus, in this big crowd uh, teaching, has someone who comes out and says, Teacher, my bro- tell my brother, <laughs> this is funny, any of you who have raised children uh, just know this phrase, tell my brother, you know, something's coming next to, that says you're going to have to settle a dispute. And so someone in the crowd says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Now that may sound a little strange. Here's Jesus, the one who is the creator of the entire universe, the one before whom we will stand at the end of time in the great judgment, who made him judge. I think he would be a good judge, <laughs> a good arbiter in a situation like this. But the man is approaching Jesus because he's a rabbi. And in this culture and time, the rabbis would help settle even these domestic matters or domestic disputes. And Jesus is just dismissing that and saying, I am not, I'm not the expert <laughs> who's going to answer this question. But since you asked, Jesus said... I will say this, verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all, now this version says covetousness, that's a long word. Some of your versions, if you look, it might say all forms of greed, which is another word here. Some may say against all forms of avarice, another big word. I don't know that we even use that word too much anymore. So what is this word? Jesus says, be on your guard. This is the first point that Jesus makes. He's going to tell us three things don't do, and then he's going to say, here, do this. The first thing that he says, 
to not do or to get out of your life or be on your guard against is all forms of covetousness or greed. Now, the, the word there is a word that we, we don't really have in English. And that's why you'll see these different words translators choose. We don't really have a word that encapsulates what this means. But you know the concept. You know the concept of wanting a little bit more than your share or a little bit more than what you have right now. In fact, this is, this is just a well-known phenomenon uh, throughout the, the, the world. And that is that right now, if we took a poll of all of you, very few of you, in fact, I would say almost none of us, if we were really honest, could say that we are absolutely satisfied with what we have right now. There's a sense in which I, I would do better if I had just a little bit more. Let me run a thought experiment with you and see if this isn't true. Uh, take the amount that you, we're not quite to tax time, that would cause anxiety, wouldn't it? But that will come up, let's say, next April, when you have to fill out your taxes and write how much you made this year in 2022. So take your annual salary, whatever it is. I imagine that would be a big span in a group like this, but just take that number for you. What is it that you make in a typical year? And I ask, are you satisfied with that? Is that enough for you? Is it enough to be content? You don't have to answer that out loud. That's rhetorical. But here's the part that I bet you could answer. Let me watch your eyes when I say this. What would happen if next year we added one zero, just one, to the end of that number? So in the U.S., if we took the average of all the high and all the low salaries, I think the average last year was $65,000 a year. So if you were somewhere in that average and make $65,000 a year, and I say, would you be content? You would say, well, we're in church. I'm supposed to be content, so... Yes, kind of content. But I say, what would happen if I added a zero to the end, and instead of 65000 we made it 650000 next year? Would it be easier to be content? I saw your eyes, yeah. Yeah, we all breathe the same air. That's our culture. That's the world we live in. That if I had just a little bit more, I could be more happy. Well, you know, two, three weeks ago, uh, Laura and, and I, with our son Martin, worshipped with a church in Accra, which is in Ghana, West Africa. And we were, this was at a, at a campus ministry where a group of young training professionals in the school there gathered on Sunday to go through their appointment with God, like we just did, having communion together and sharing uh, God's word together, and they worshipped together. But you know, in that group of young men and women who will become nurses and dentists and physicians— that their average annual salary, even at the top, when they, when they are at the top of their career, will be about $6,500 per year. And if I were to ask them, are you going to be satisfied? Are you going to be content with that? Well, they'd give me the same. Well, maybe, yeah. I'd say, well, what if I just put one zero after it? And instead of 6500 made it 65000 Do you know what their eyes would do? It's the same that yours did. Because to put a zero after theirs makes them feel the same way that you feel when I add a zero to yours. But what's ironic about that is that the zero I add to theirs actually just brings them up to the level that you, on average, make in our culture. Do you see the point there? It, we are made so that no amount of stuff will ever satisfy your soul. It's just the way we're made. And Jesus says, for that reason... Be on your guard against any form of feeling like you need more. Because that feeling of, I need a little bit more, is what the Greeks call pleonexia. 
It was not considered a virtue. It was considered a, a vice because it was, it was what led to uh, stealing and to murder and to trying to cheat others. Just that desire to have a little bit more than what I was my share. And so Jesus says, be on your guard against that. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life, and the word that he uses here for life is the word zoe, real life. That real life that the rich young ruler was asking about, that life that lasts forever, that, <clears throat> that life that God breathed into mankind when he made the first human beings, that life does not consist in what you own. Now, you know this is true, at least intellectually, because if we went across the street to the hospital, let's say somebody here was having a medical emergency, and we went across the street, <clears throat> when you roll into the ER, they perform a series of tests to check your vital signs. And so we'll check your heart rate and your blood pressure and your temperature. Uh, we'll check for a respiration rate. We'll put on probes to look at the oxygen level. These are all called vital signs. Do you know what no medical professional over there will do at the first of the medical emergency? Nobody is going to check the abundance of your possessions. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, last time I went, that's the first question they wanted. Was, what's my insurance and my form of payment? Now, that's the front office staff. I'm talking about the people that really care about your life <laughs> back behind. Those medical professionals are looking for signs of life. And we know that there's nothing in your bank account. There's nothing in your insurance card program. There is nothing in the abundance of your possessions that's a sign of life. That's Jesus' point. Be on your guard against all forms of covetousness because your life does not consist of what you own. Your life is something much deeper. What is that? Well, Jesus says, listen on. That's not the end of our story just yet. So he goes on from 15 to verse 16. And Jesus told them this parable. He said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Just a quick exit ramp uh, Greek word study here. Notice how he uses the word soul. I don't know what your translations may use a different word there. Uh, that's the word suke. It's the word for self. It's where we get the term psychology deals with the inner man or inner self. This is a word that is used. Sometimes in scripture it's translated life. Sometimes it's translated soul. The problem is that you tend to think of soul nowadays the way the Greeks thought about it, as if it's some disembodied part of you that one day will be whisked off to heaven, you know, at the end of time, as if that's a part of you that's a ghost, you know, that will outlive you. But that's not the way the Bible teaches about the soul, and it's not the way the word is used here. This word soul means you as a person, as a self. So in the beginning when God you know, made the heavens and the earth and he made mankind, he pulled together this lump of clay and he breathed into this human being the breath of life. That word life is the word zoe. He breathed into his nostrils the real life. And the man became a living suke when translated in English, a living soul, meaning a living self, a unique person. And so when Jesus is telling the story, he says, just imagine that you have a man who did really well one year. And he says to himself, self <laughs> or soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, 
drink and be merry. But God says to him, fool. This isn't the bad word fool. It's a word that says, hey, you're not using your brain. This night, your suke or your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with anyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's the next piece of our puzzle. And that is, what does it mean to do good and to share? First, it's to guard against greed. And Jesus emphasizes that by saying, all your possessions, that's not what makes up your life. When your life moves on, when this soma or this body dies, all that you possess will be passed on to someone else. And that's the way it is for anyone who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. Well, what does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, the passage continues, and Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, the second thing not to do, (laughs) don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will own. By the way, what is this word life? Don't be anxious about your life. Do you know that's the word suke? I don't know why your translators decided to use soul in one place and life in another, but it's the same word. He says, Jesus says, so don't be worried about your self, what you're going to eat and drink, or about this body, what you will wear. In the next few weeks, there are a lot of marketing advertisers that are going to want you to worry and be anxious about what you eat and about what you put on your body or you wear. That's just the nature of the season. But Jesus says, no, not for you. Do not be anxious about about your life. Then he gives these illustrations. For your life or your suke, yourself, is more than food. So you remember how your life doesn't consist of possessions. Your life also doesn't consist of food. And your body does not consist of clothing. It's more than that. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, neither have storehouses or barn, yet God feeds them. You know that's true. I love how in Luke he chooses ravens because that's what you have here in the middle of winter. And I'm sure you, like me, are just amazed that you walk out, it's five below, and there's a raven sitting <laughs> up there, survive the night, and is eating. And Jesus says, did you see that? Your heavenly Father feeds that raven. And sometimes he does it over at Costco in the parking lot. I know how the, <laughs> you know, that works. But did you see those pictures last year, the... Uh, the poor family came out, they had their nice steaks, and they were packing up the car, and they turned around, and the package was now on the ground, and one of the steaks was missing, and there was a raven flying off with it. Did you hear that story? Yeah, perhaps that made you, made you angry at those birds. And if it did, why did that make you angry? It's because the person is more important than that bird. That person who went to work for a week to get enough income to go and to buy something for the family and have a nice meal and was bringing it out to their car. That's what is important, is the person. How dare that bird (laughs) come and take away that meal? That's Jesus' point, is that if that's how God takes care of the birds, don't you know that you're worth more than the birds? How much more are you worth? And then verse 25, and which of you by being anxious can add, this says a single hour to the span of his life. The word there is actually can add a single uh, cubit to his stature. It's a way of saying, imagine that your life was this long line that you could measure where every foot is like an hour of your life. Those of you who are engineers, I'll let you do the math on that, but try to figure out how long your life is. Span it out as this long measurement. Now, I want you, by worrying, 
See if you can make it one foot longer. And Jesus says, who can do that? And then almost tongue-in-cheek afterwards, Jesus says, if then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Try to be anxious about your life. You know it doesn't make your life longer. We all know it makes it shorter, doesn't it? That's what causes stress and cardiovascular disease, leads to autoimmune disease. All kinds of things can be connected to increased anxiety. And Jesus says, if you're not able to do such a small thing as make your life a little bit longer, why are you anxious about what you put in your mouth and eat and what you wear? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, meaning the wealthy king who was the son of David, you know, in the Old Testament, in all his splendor, he was not dressed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today, but tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of a little faith. So do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. So there's your second point. First, be on your guard against any kind of avarice. The second point Jesus makes is do not give in to a mental heart focus on what's coming next. People who study this in psychology and social work say that, you know, really, anxiety is inseparably connected to uncertainty. And that's where Jesus is able, though, to separate those two and say that you can give up, you can guard against anxiety. And he does it by throwing in the one word, which is the opposite of uncertainty, which is certainty. And that's that word, faith. Is that with faith, you can guard against being worried. For all the nations of the world, doesn't matter what culture you're from, what country you're from, all the nations of the world seek after what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And your father knows that you need them. Isn't that a wonderful line? That Jesus put this in. Don't worry about all these things of life that you are cultured to worry about. Because your heavenly father knows that you need them. Instead, he says, here's what you do. You seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. How do I seek his kingdom? What does that mean? And so Jesus continues. And the third thing he says to not do is fear not. So first of all, guard against greed. Second, don't be anxious. Third, don't fear little flock. (laughs) Little flock. For why? For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasures in heaven that do not fail. For where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this is the point at which what Jesus told the rich young man does become a command to you. To all of us who choose to follow Christ, there is this written statement that we are to do our work. The, the phrase there, sell your possessions, can be interpreted as, hey, sell all your possessions. But more appropriately, it is as you sell your possessions. In other words, if you were uh, someone who sold goods in the market, sell your goods and then take the proceeds from that and do good and share. Whatever your profession is, take it what it is that you possess because of what you do 
And it's not just for you. It's, that's not what defines who you are, your life. You take what you have, you do good, and you share. Now, Jesus knows how that will make you feel. Probably just like that rich young man. And so he begins the statement not with sell your possessions and give to those who have need. Notice what he starts with. He knows you're afraid of this. So he says, do not fear. Because the Father, in his good pleasure, has been pleased to give you, did you catch this? The kingdom. Do you know what a kingdom is? The word basileia here that's, that's used or translated kingdom goes all the way back to the, as far as we can see in, in history. There have been these collections of people that work and live together who are overseen by usually a ruler called a king or an emperor or uh, someone in authority or a ruler. And they're called a kingdom. Or later in your Bible, you read about empires, and there's a series of empires. Uh, later in history, that would become sovereign nations. You can use whichever word you want. But notice what Jesus does here is he says, The Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This is referring to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, the one that he came to save, the one that in the beginning, when God made the garden and he put into that garden human beings, this was the kingdom that went terribly awry. And so the rest of what you read in scripture is God making the world right again in order to usher back in this time when God, as the true leader of this sovereign nation, makes the world right again and Jesus looks out at you and says you realize the father has been pleased to give you this kingdom another way to say that is he has given you access to this kingdom and that's not some reward because in your life you did more good things than bad or because you pleased God more than you angered him and so somehow God says okay your gift your president of the tree will be this kingdom that's not what's going on here Jesus is saying You are God's children. And as children, you have an inheritance. You'll see this written throughout much of scripture where you inherit this sovereign nation of God, which means that you have access to all the resources of the kingdom of heaven. This is why Jesus could say things like, if you need anything, just ask. And whatever you ask in my name, it will be provided to you. That was not a blank check for going shopping and getting stuff just to spend on yourself. That was a good employer who says, I want you to do a great job. Whatever you need, just ask. And we'll provide what you, why could he say that? He could say that because you have access, not just to a family savings account, or a bank account, or access to resources in your community, do you realize you have access to the wealth of the universe? Last night, we watched a, a Nova as a family. It was on that James Webb you know, new telescope in which you can look out and see just uh, how unfathomable the universe is. And you think, wow, God made all of that. And you realize that's what Jesus is saying here. You You, this week, have access to the greatest source of resources in the entire universe, to the kingdom. Therefore, and then the next sentence, reach into your pocket, sell your possessions, and help somebody around you. And why don't we fear? Because we are children. We are God's children. And we have access to 
this incredible kingdom. And through us, God helps to make the world right again now. And that's why those early followers of Christ were able to gather, and it could be said of them, there were no needy persons among them. So Jesus, to conclude, Jesus says this. So you, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now that's a nice English translation. Uh, In the first century, you would not have said it this way. You would have said, gird your loins and keep your lamps on. And that's what Jesus says here. This is a mosaic from the first century. And you see what it means there to dress yourself to serve. It meant to take that tunic or that long robe that you had, you wrap it up around your waist, and you gird your loins in order to serve. And that's the phrase Jesus uses to say, you be like those men who are waiting for their master to come home at a wedding feast, that that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. What does Jesus mean by being dressed and ready to serve? It's everything he just talked about before. It's not putting your hope in wealth. It's taking what you have and doing good and sharing and being willing to share, seeking his kingdom as inheritors of that kingdom, seeking him first and knowing that God is the one who provides. That's what it means to be dressed, to use whatever I have within reach to help others. And then this beautiful phrase, Jesus says, blessed are those servants whose master finds them awake. In other words, finds them doing what they're supposed to do. When he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. I want you to see that phrase. Jesus says, he will take off his outer garment, wrap himself for service, and have them recline at the table. Do you know who the them is? That's you. Jesus will have you recline at the table, and then in that act of service, he will come and serve them. What's meant to come back to mind here, and actually Jesus said this, now that I think about it, before he did this, but later the disciples, you remember in that upper room, would sit and see this actually played out where Peter, James, John, the other disciples sitting there around the table would see him do this, stand up, put on the servant's clothes, and serve them. And do you remember what Jesus said at the end of that? (coughs) He said, now that I, your Lord and Master, have done this for you, you do this for each other. And so Jesus concludes there, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So as we get into this season of giving and doing good, let this be a reminder to us that what makes this activity uniquely Christian is two things. One, it's not a season. It's who we are. And though the rest of the world will participate and have just a taste of that valuable um, reward of what it's like to take what I have and share it with someone else, others will get a chance to taste that. But for you, as followers of Christ, it's part of who you are. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, going back to the verse we read last week, is able to say that through Jesus, let's continually offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and to not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For with such sacrifices, we find they are pleasing to God. Well, may the reading of God's word be blessed by him 
And may he bless you as you find ways this week to put that message that Jesus gave us into practice. And if there's something about this message that makes you want to follow Jesus and say, I'd like a taste of that, then I hope I hope you will investigate. I hope you will look. I hope you will choose to follow Jesus. And if today is the day to start that journey and you say, I'd like to accept baptism, I would like to be baptized and, and sign the dotted line and follow him, today could be that day. And we invite you to come forward uh, to commit to him as we stand and as we sing. Why with the sunshine of life will thy roam farther and farther away? Call.